created live on Fireside. Welcome to Go Team, the sports history podcast that teaches you that Colin Kaepernick was not the biggest scandal for a group of people who call themselves 49ers. I'm your host, Kelly, and with me is my beautiful husband, who's not a scandal for anyone ever, and my co-host and co-creator, Josh. I like to think my beauty is scandalous. Ooh, that's a good one. (laughs) I would like, I think that's probably accurate. Your beauty is scandalous. I just don't often get referred to as beautiful, so I appreciate it. Well, I mean, you you have a beautiful spirit and a beautiful soul, and um, you should be complimented on that more. Mm, thank you. You as well. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> now that we've got the pleasantries out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have quite the story tonight. Um. It's a doozy. It's. Yeah. I'm excited layered. for it. It's yeah. so layered. There's so much stuff here um, that I didn't know about. So much stuff that I um, learned in doing research for our show tonight about the San Francisco 49ers and where their name has come from that I really think I'm going to shock you. And you're going to be like, oh, I never knew that. Oh. Because that's my goal. Because I feel like as you dive into your topic of the San Francisco 49ers, most people would be like, oh, yeah, I know what the 49ers are. Because it's kind of common. Yeah. Uh, but to to peel back the layers of this onion, this will be exciting. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's a good way to sort of put it, is that I think a lot of people have common knowledge, like surface knowledge of – 49, the 49ers, not the football team, the group of people, and the California Gold Rush, but there's so much more to it uh, that never gets talked about, honestly. So just before we start, what is your sort of surface level of 49ers and the California Gold Rush? Um, you know, that's about it, really. <laughs> it, it was the uh, the gold rush in 49. I mean, it, thinking back to the history books in grade school, right? There's like a couple, like maybe like a one paragraph little thing. And it's, but it's like a very, um, I think, especially for little kids, it, it can be a very uh, imaginary, very like exciting, almost adventurous like thought, right? Like, oh, all these people rushed to California uh, to seek adventure and fortune. And they, you know, dug for gold in the mountains. And that's sort of like the surface layer that you get when you're in like fourth grade. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, um, from there, there's not much beyond that that gets discussed. Um, obviously I've seen plenty of, uh, movies and TV shows that depict gold rushes in various forms, whether it's the Alaska one or, uh, you name it. Um, so I know how people can be during a gold rush, thanks to Hollywood. Um, but that's it. That's my surface level. Yeah. Well, I'm about to blow your mind then, I think, a little bit. Because there's so much about um, the California gold rush that has shaped California and has made us think you know, like you think one thing about California, right? Um, I think one thing about California. Well, like I think people think California is really liberal and really okay. You know, I don't know where you're going with that. I was like, I don't know. Like people Calif- have that. I, I, that's, I mean, like, you have an idea about about California, and and this I think is going to change it a little bit. So, all right. Before we, before we start, I just want to list my sources quick. Forty um, Niners dot com. That would be the football team. Wikipedia, of course, Coloma.com. Coloma, California is the sort of cl- the town closest to where the California gold rush started. Uh, battlefield.org, history.com, lgbtqhistory.org, uh, the Northwest California Genocide Project, and um, an article from Mercury News, which is a newspaper in California. So, 
the San Francisco 49ers began as the hope and dream of a man named Tony Morabito. And Tony believed that the West Coast in general and San Francisco in particular was ready for a professional sports team. Now, this is the early 1940s. So this is pre-World War II we're talking. Um, in 1942, he presented his case as to why the Bay Area should have a team, a football team, to the NFL. College football was really popular in the Bay Area and in California. They were getting record, you know, sort of attendance there. The weather's good. You know, they had the population. They could build the stadiums. They could do all the things they needed. He thought this was a slam dunk. The NFL said no. Football Mm. is an East Coast sport. He tried again in 1944. um, And he presented this again to the NFL in Chicago. Because that's kind of, I don't know why, that's just where the meeting was. But there were also no teams west of Chicago in 1944. Which I didn't know. I thought like when the NFL, you know, became a thing. There were teams all over that was not true. So yeah, he, yeah. definitely an East Coast thing, really, in the East Midwest. Coast thing. Yeah. So, but he was told no again. So Tony was disheartened. But then he heard word about Arch Ward. And Arch Ward was a sports editor at the Chicago Tribune. And Arch wanted to organize a rival league to the NFL called the All-American Football Conference. And Tony was like, sign me up. I'm in. He knew the time was right. So in 1946, Tony and his co-owners, Alan Sorrell and EJ Turi, were in operation for the San Francisco 49ers. Up and running in the AAFC. Um, The name 49ers was actually suggested by Alan Sorrell after, of course, the 1849 California gold rush. So why is the gold rush so important? Why is it so important that they, because it didn't last long, honestly. I mean, we'll talk about that, but it was not a long lasting event that occurred. But it shaped California. It made California what it is today in so very many, many ways. So the California Gold Rush started on January 24th, 1848. There actually were a few gold um, strikes before that, like a couple years before that, but nothing huge. So gold was found by James Marshall at Sutter's Mill in Coloma, California. James Marshall was building this mill for this guy named Sutter, who was a um, Austrian immigrant to California. And he, so Sutter's idea was he was going to have this big farm, this big agricultural production. So he needed a mill built there and a well dug. So Marshall is the one who actually found the gold in the well in the river that ran through the property there. Marshall brought the metal he found to Sutter They tested it because there's, you know, some chemical things you can do to test whether or not um, this is gold that they have. And they tested it and they're like, oh, my God, it's gold. Sutter was immediately like, oh, no, we better keep this a secret because my land is going to be overrun. So he swore everybody who was at the mill and his farm, his ranch to secrecy. Like, don't do not tell a soul about this but it's just about as good as when you like do something sneaky with our youngest son and tell him not to tell anybody what no and he immediately tells me <laughs> he immediately tells me dad said i could say a swear word today and i did or dad and i got ice cream for breakfast something stupid like that he will always immediately tell me um that you told him not to do that so um Also going on around this time is the Mexican-American War, which actually happened to end the following month in February of 1848. They signed the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which transferred ownership of California to the U.S. Not, I mean, ownership, but like now California was part of the United States, not part of Mexico. 
if that makes sense. That does. They talk about it in the Zorro movie, I think. So yeah, it's usually, that's where I learned most of my California history. Right. That's what I was uh, the whole time. I was like, <laughs> I think they covered this in the Zorro movie with Antonio Banderas. Um, so this is this is important because um, at the time the population of California was around six thousand five hundred people of Spanish or Mexican descent, and then one hundred and fifty thousand native. Um, tribes were in California. So this becomes important later for like land and mineral rights in California and um, governing and lawmaking in California. Cause as we all know, the United States makes some real shitty laws and they can, they will continue to do so throughout the gold rush. So, so Sutter swore everyone at the mill to secrecy about the gold. He sent a man to Monterey to meet with this guy named Colonel Mason because we were in the process of transferring California over to the United States. So Mason, Colonel Mason was the man to go to, to secure mineral rights for the land, which is what Sutter needed to be like, this is all mine. All y'all back off. The man he sent was a guy named Bennett. Not only could he not keep a secret, he told it twice on his way to talk to Colonel Mason and then wasn't trying to really tell Mason that they found gold at Sutter's Mill, but trying to be like, just in case we do, can we have the rights? And Mason was like, no. He's like, okay, we already found gold. Can we do it now? <laughs> so he was real bad at keeping a secret. By March, so the very next month, the rumors about the gold strike at Sutter's Mill were all over. Very well established in San Francisco. Now, San Francisco at this time is not a budding metropolis. It's a very tiny, tiny town of about like 300 people. So, but the, you know, rumor spread and there was a newspaper man there who was also a merchant and his name was San Samuel. Oh man, I can't read my handwriting here. Samuel <laughs> Brennan. And he heard the rumors was like, Oh man, people are going to start coming here. They're going to need supplies. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to set up a shop. I was going to say dry, dry goods store, some sort of general store. Yeah, dry goods store, general goods store, mining supplies. Um, and then he would walk through town holding up a vial of gold flakes, yelling gold, gold, gold from the American River, and just drove people insane with it. By August in 1848, the news had reached the East Coast. It was in the newspapers in major cities. And in December, President James K. Polk, you know President Polk. He's like your favorite. Yeah. President James K. Polk told Congress gold had been discovered in California. That sealed the deal. People were like, holy shit, we could go to California, strike gold, and be millionaires. So this starts, once Polk says this to Congress, this starts the migration of individuals seeking gold to California. So we're going to break this down a little bit now to talk about all the different ways the gold rush um, impacted the world, people, and um, the environment. So first, how do people travel to California? How did they get there from the East Coast and from other parts of the world? Well, there's a couple ways they could do this. So around... 300,000 people came to California specifically to strike gold. 300,000 people. There was not that many people in the state at the time. So they came a couple of ways. The first major wave of people to come were, um, well, the first major wave of Asian, of Asian population came to the United States during this gold rush. Um, they were, came through usually indentured servitude. Uh, they were desperate to escape situations in Asia that were terrible and they came here and they didn't get much better. So anyway, so several ways to get to the East coast, um, to get to California from the East coast, Europe, and Asia. The first way, which sounds the most terrible way is to sail from New York to San Francisco. Do you know how you sail from New York to San Francisco in 1849, Josh? Probably, probably all the way down around South America. You sail all the way down. 
around Cape Horn at the tip of South America. One voyage reportedly took 196 days. And the waters, when you sail around that Cape Hope at the tip of South America, are treacherous. Ships crashed and sank all the time. The weather was terrible. Um, It was extremely dangerous to do. You could also sail from New York to the Atlantic coast of Panama, travel overland to the Pacific coast of Panama, and sail to California from there. However, the weight took such a long time because Panama had no infrastructure for this influx of travelers coming trying to get to California. So they waited and they waited. The waiting led to disease, starvation, um, getting malaria, getting yellow fever, and dying a horrible death in Panama, not nearly even close to your dream of getting to California and striking gold. Yikes. You could also, yeah, you could also <laughs> travel overland to California via the California Trail, the Mormon Trail, or the Oregon Trail. This, of course, as we all know from playing Oregon Trail in junior high, was incredibly dangerous. Um, not only did they risk being attacked by uh, hostile Native tribes, who I also want to mention, the Native tribes were only hostile because they were being attacked as well and they were having um, their women and their children stolen and their land stolen and were being forced off their land. So let's do hostile in like quotes there. Um, But that wasn't even the greatest threat traveling overland to California. The greatest threat was disease. Cholera killed around 12,500 people who were traveling up to California for the gold rush. 12,000 people died of cholera that's a poo oh. disease you drink poo water <laughs> that's a poo disease well, you drink poo yeah. water and then you poo yourself to death that's horrid they that's they don't tell you things like that i'm posting an advertisement on uh to encourage people to sail to california they, they're not telling you about any of these uh these things uh when they're trying to get no. you to sail to california and that's part of the thing so they had all this really great advertisement about come to california and strike it rich and do all these things And no one who was writing those advertisements knew anything about the journey to California. It was that is partially what fueled, you know, the sort of gold rush and gold fever to California. So those are the ways you would travel there. Those were the only ways. So the first people to rush for gold were the residents of California, people who already lived there, right? So those people were called 48ers because gold was struck at Sutter's Mill in 1848. They were the 48ers. They were often families who moved to the areas where the gold was struck. They all worked together. They all, you know, the kids, the mom, the dad, everybody staked a claim and worked the mine together. Then comes people from Oregon, settlers who had gone to Oregon years before, Followed by people from the Sandwich Islands. Do you know what the Sandwich Islands are, Josh? They're tasty. Oh! <laughs> no, they're the Hawaiian Islands. They yes, were I actually, I actually knew that. Sandwich I, Islands. I'm not just saying that now, but I actually did know that trivia Well, question. we'll never know because you just said it now. So we'll I know. It was worth know. it. It was worth it's it for okay. the joke. So then came people from Mexico and Peru and other South American countries because California had been a part of Mexico. So it had a strong Latin American influence. Um, And then came, you know, the influx of Asians and um, even attractive people from Europe um, and like, you know, the United Kingdom, mainland Europe, all that were all, they had people from all over the world coming to California for the gold rush. So now, like, did people strike gold there? What do you think? Do you think people struck gold for real? Do you think anybody really became a millionaire? Yes. yes I do. they did. They yeah. did. <laughs> um, they did. The early miners did often strike gold, sometimes thousands of dollars worth of gold in a single day. Uh, the I, You know, some people were lucky enough to do six months of work for six years of wages. So um, a lot of people did strike gold and got kind of wealthy, not the kind of wealth that is like generational wealth, 
but enough to establish themselves in California. Um, when it was all said and done, $2 billion worth of gold was mined out of the California hills during the gold rush. So I should mention Coloma, for those of you who don't know, is near, like the Sutter's Mill was kind of at the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas. Um, and so that's where the main mining was at the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas in that sort of area there near where San Francisco is. So by 1850, though, much of the surface gold that had first been discovered was gone. No more gold to be had. But the miners kept coming. At the end of 1849, the population of California, just in one year, grew by more than 100,000 people. In one year. In total, it grew by over 300,000. So, no, no wonder there's poop disease. So much poop disease. So let's talk a little bit about the environmental effects um, of the gold rush, which I had never really considered until I read about this. And I was like, oh, yeah, that makes total sense that the gold rush like completely wrecked the environment. So um, the gold rush and the mining tactics permanently altered the California landscape to this day, altered it. So people built dams to supply water to the mining boom towns that came, sprouted up and altered routes of ri- the ri- of rivers that had you know gone one way and they altered them and that's the way the rivers still run to this day in California. Um, hydraulic mining also devastated the environment by using water and toxic chemicals and producing silt and gravel and all those stuff and, and then. Another thing that happened was because of the huge growth and the large number of people who came, you have to supply to meet that demand, right? So you have to have buildings, you have to have um, wood to cook, to have cook stove, you know, to have campfires and things like that. So the logging industry actually is really the thing that where people got rich in the gold rush because they needed to supply lumber for all these boom towns and miners and um you know for mining you know two things i guess so people who are in the lumber industry at this time were they are the ones who became millionaires but again devastated northern california and its environment because they just cut everything down this makes me think of the journey of natty gan when because her dad's a, a logger and he goes out to the north Pacific Northwest and is logging and they show when she goes out there and she's walking up the hill to try and find them. And it's just, you can see some trees in the distance, but everything else is just cut down and it's real sad and like depressed looking. Cause you think Natty Gann's not going to find her dad and it's supposed to be sad and depressed, but guess what? She finds him. Finds him. Yep. But that, those are two different times, but that's kind of just what I thought about. <laughs> so that's just a little bit of like environmental effects. There are more, but I'm not going to get into it because I'm not an expert in environmental um, science and I don't want to say something that is incorrect. What? I'm not, really. (laughs) So other impacts that the gold rush had on it, um, the influx of people to California led to um, moving forward with statehood because so many towns and cities sprouted up. Those towns and cities created charters which led to them having a state constitutional convention and led to them having elections to send officials to Congress in Washington, D.C. to push for statehood, the statehood of California. The population of San Francisco alone went from 500 to 150,000 people between 1847 and 1870. That's some mighty growth there. Yeah, that's a boom town for sure. That's a boom town. Um, uh, one, a good thing that actually happened was overland travel to California was vastly improved because so many people were going. So they had to build infrastructure so people could get to California safely and maybe not die of poo disease from drinking poo water. Um, so they improved that. There was a railroad built across the Isthmus of Panama, and that was completed in 1855. So, I mean, yes, that was completed 
to ferry people from one coast of Panama to the other, but also, you know, also benefited the people of Peru as well and provided jobs and things. Yes, a lot of people died making railroads, as always happened in the 1800s, but, you know, it was good for Panama too, not just the gold rushers. So this is something that I want to talk about now that I had no idea happened in the California gold rush. And that is the transformation of gender roles. Are you ready for this? Oh yeah. Unexpected. You're throwing me a curve. I know I was thrown this curve as well when I was researching. So the gold rush happens in the Victorian era, right? So in the Victorian era, women had very, very strict gender roles. So when I, when you think of a Victorian woman, what, what are the kinds of things you think of? What kind uh, of woman is she? I guess probably I would say dainty. Yes. Very dainty. Weak. Very weak. In a dress. Very much in a dress. <laughs> yes. And she stays at home and she is domesticated and she is not supposed to be in public, usually without a chaperone of the male persuasion. Um, men on the other hand were men. They were masculine. They did the work, they did the labor, they took care of the family and they, you know, were heterosexual. Um, but in California during the gold rush, things kind of got a little squidgy because far more of the population in California at this time were men. There were not that many women there because mining, panning for gold is a tough job. It's a tough thing to do. Not that women aren't tough, but they were sort of subject to those Victorian gender stereotypes and roles and were like, oh, well, I can't go and mine for gold. I shall stay here. But there were women out there and those women were badass bitches. They worked, they opened businesses, or they panned for gold. And the women who worked in open businesses, a lot of times it was like a saloon or a brothel, but they made that money. They became very wealthy from that. Women who panned for gold often dressed as men for a lot of reasons. One, because panning for gold and wearing a dress, those two things don't go together. It's really hard to wear a dress and do a lot of like physical activity. For those of you who've never worn a dress, it can be a little, you know, restrictive because you don't want to flash your underpants to everybody. Another reason women who pan for gold would dress as men was for protection because they didn't want to get raped. They didn't want to be assaulted. They didn't want their claim stolen. So they would pretend to be men. One woman who did this was a French woman named Jean-Marie Susie. She wore pants all the time. She cut her hair real short and worked as a, um, a miner. She panned for gold. She didn't necessarily identify as a man, but she, um, you know, was a more masculine woman and kind of took to that role very naturally. One person who did identify as a man was a person named Charlie Parhurst. Now, Charlie was assigned female at birth. They were born in Virginia in the early 1800s, but lived most of his life as a man. Charlie moved to California a little bit before the gold rush and became a stagecoach driver in California and was a very well-known stagecoach driver and was like really good at it because driving stagecoach is incredibly hard and was incredibly dangerous. And Charlie was super, super good at it. No one ever knew that Charlie was assigned female at birth. Everyone assumed he was assigned male at birth and no one knew about it until his death when they did an autopsy and found female genitalia and it blew people's minds. Whoa. It was like written about in the paper and stuff. It was, it was a BFD. So that's sort of women, women, you know, out who are in the gold rush kind of shook those gender norms and, and, you know, sisters doing it for themselves kind of things. So you know, interesting, here. interesting. I just want to interject because I was, I was trying to find a good photo uh, while you were talking just to give me a re reference of the women in the gold rush and a yeah. super interesting factoid. And you might touch on it. So I'm sorry if you do, but this is just so cool because you were, you were talking about the disparity, how many more men there were than women. 
Yeah. And so I was like, I wonder what that was, right? Like how much more? Uh, and so it was in, in thousands, it was like may, men were like 110,000 in mm-hmm. 1850 and women were 10,000. That's a big difference. <laughs> and in fact, in fact, in this chart I'm looking at on uh, wik- just a quick Wikipedia, it took until 1950 until men and women were of the same population numbers. 1950? Until 1950. Wow. That's how long it took for them to even out. That's surprising. Well, that's a good segue into my little speech about the gender roles of men during the gold rush as you said there were way more men than there were women in california due to the isolation um remoteness general you know difficulty of living out there Uh, and because of the isolation many men were sort of afforded the chance and the opportunity to re-examine their sexual and social practices so they're out here with a bunch of other men and Maybe you finally realize that those little feelings, dark, tingly feelings you've had inside all your life, it's kind of okay now to do this because other men are lonely and looking at you and maybe you kind of like that. So cross-dressing and cross-gender practices sort of really took off at this time due to the absence of women. So one way that this happened was they would have these dances in these mining boom towns or camps or wherever where men would wear a piece of cloth on them, some kind of cloth, to denote that they were a quote-unquote woman. So they were the woman for the dances. And this continued not just in dances and in social things, but in domestic areas too, with men like living together and having relationships and um, you know loving one another kind of openly. So this gender and social fluidity set the groundwork and shaped the beginnings of San Francisco's queer history and culture, which I had no idea about. Like I never knew it started that early. I yeah. I never knew that like those queer um, history and roots in San Francisco and California went all the went that far back. It all makes sense now. <laughs> I know. Doesn't uh, it? Yeah, and uh, I so I just posted in the chat there for you a photo. I don't know if you if you saw when you were doing your research, but uh, a photo of one of the miners' balls, uh, which was a ca- the kind of dances you were just talking about. But there was a, an illustration that I shared. You can check that out in the chat. And for those listening live on Fireside, they can they can see that. So um, for those listening on our uh, recording of our podcast, um, you'll definitely just just Google miners' ball um, for you know. Ne- 49er gold rush and you'll see the illustration yeah it was a it was legitimately a gay old time it was pretty great um so next okay so that those are kind of like fun things about the gold rush are you ready for the not fun things about the Uh, gold rush maybe (laughs) because we're going to talk about the gold rush and its impact on the native people of California. And you know, this is never going to be good. Yeah. So the environmental impact from the gold rush alone left many native people uh, in a bad way because they were dependent on hunting and fishing. And because of the um, devastation of the environment from the gold, from the gold rush and from mining, that led to the killing off of fish and animals. And so those people kind of starved the toxic chemicals and the silt killed fish and wildlife. And the more people who came and built towns, the less land that they had for food gathering and places to migrate to where they normally would to gather food at different times of the year and hunt and do those things that kind of all came to a stop. The spread of farming took away land from people who were already there. And even worse, um, Native people were had government-sanctioned enslavement to work mines and farms and be taken as sex slaves. So this is none of this is great stuff, but it's important to talk about because these are things that I never learned about because 
you know, I had a white Midwestern education and, um, you know, I, yes, you know, we can always educate ourselves. So that's what I'm hoping to do now, uh, that we all know a little bit about just, you know, scratching the surface really of the history of, uh, what happened to the native Californian people during the gold rush. So these sanctioned attacks on native Californian tribes became kind of normal. What really sort of happened was they would be, there would be retribution attacks for native American people standing up for themselves, their tribes and their families. One instance of this happening was in 1852. Um, a man named John Anderson was killed by a band of Wintu people in retaliation for years of abuse, enslavement, persecution by the people of the town where he lived in um, called Weaverville. This Weaverville was a gold rush town. So the people had come to Weaverville, set it up and just, you know, used and abused the Wintu people who lived there. So they were like, finally, you know, as any rational person would get pushed to their breaking point, enough is enough. They killed John Anderson, drove off all his livestock. Well, the sheriff of the town of Weaverville, William Dixon, you know, was real pissed about it. So he led a group of 70 people. Uh, in the article I read, they called them, quote unquote, volunteers, which Okay, I mean, I don't really like to use that word for something like this because it seems more like of a mob, not of not volunteers. So he led 70 people to hunt down the Wintu people, the Wintu tribe. And they found a Wintu tribe and camped on this place called Bridge Gulch. It's like a natural bridge. Um, you know, it, it's an area where there's a lot of natural bridges. So they found them and they waited until the early morning when it was dark so that none of the Wintu people could escape. And they attacked them. They slaughtered 153 men, women, and children, and only five children survived. And in the end, it turned out that that Wintu group was not even the group that killed John Anderson. It was a different group. They had no idea why they were being attacked. Wow. So that's really terrible. Another terrible incident that happened was to the Pomo tribe who also suffered terribly during the gold rush. In 1850, after forced relocations, two white settlers named Andrew Kelsey and Charles Stone enslaved many of the Pomo people to work their ranch and kept Pomo women and girls as sex slaves. Girls, little girls. Eventually, the Pomo had enough again, pushed to their breaking point. They killed both stone and Kelsey. This led to the U S government, the United States government sending an army to retaliate leading to something to an event called the bloody Island massacre of 1850. This massacre killed. And this research was real, bizarre to me killed between 60 to 400 people i was like i'm pretty sure you should know yeah, how many people man. were killed it's like 60 to 400 is a big um is a big gap there you know um but the people who were killed were mostly women and children because of course they were right because you know they're they're not fighting back so historians estimate that between the years 1846 in 1873, 9,000 to 16,000 Native Californians were killed in over 370 massacres. Not only that, but California as a state would not ratify treaties made by tribal leaders and federal agents. So the tribal leaders would think they were doing the right thing and make a treaty with a federal agent. And California said, nope, not in our state. The state government funded death squads and paramilitary groups whose job they were paid to exterminate native people to get them off of California land. So the people who came from the gold rush and stayed could continue using that land. The first governor of California, Peter Burnett, declared in his 
in an address to the California State Congress that a war of extermination will continue to be waged between the two races until the Indian race becomes extinct. It is this is written record that this was said by the first governor of California. Added on to that, laws were passed banning non-white people from providing testimony. So even if you had proof, you had 10 witnesses that this white guy came and killed your wife and your children for no reason other than your Native American, you could not. You were prevented from testifying in court, so they would never be brought to trial because you couldn't testify. And if you couldn't testify as a Native person, who was going to? No one was going to, right? No one's going to testify for you. Nope. So the Act for the Government and protection of Indians was passed in 1850. And this allowed the sanctioned settlers to capture and enslave native people as bonded workers. And it allowed settlers, white settlers to quote unquote, adopt native children. And they adopted these native children to use for all those terrible things you can probably imagine labor, forced labor, and sexual abuse. This was the law in California. They could take Native children from their families and do whatever they wanted with them, and nobody did anything about it. Also, the state of California passed racist tax laws that tax only non-white miners and workers. So you could be Native, you could be Mexican, you could be from South America, you could be Asian, and you paid taxes on all everything that you mined, any gold that you got, any wages that you earned, but white settlers and white miners did not pay those taxes. Ain't that some shit? That's that's definitely some shit. So that's kind of the terrible history of the California gold rush. I did not want to end on like a downer note because it's a super downer. So let's talk about the San Francisco 49ers, the football team a little bit, shall we? To sort of just bring things back around. Even right. though the, now... The namesake. Right. Even though now as I'm thinking like, man, should they change the name? Like, should this be included too to change the name? Because it's kind of not okay. Like 49ers is a thing that California now has pride in and is really associated with a lot of things in California. Like the word Eureka, which is a town in California, that Eureka, I found gold. It's on like gold is, the gold rush is part of the California state seal. It's like all over the place. And it was not great for a lot of people. So anyway, the San Francisco 49ers, the football team, their original logo which they adopted, you know, when they took the name, shows a miner with two pistols. um, Because, of course, mining was a very violent time because people were either going to steal your claim or you had to fend yourself off from, you know, Native American tax. Um, But his name is Sourdough Sam. He's still their mascot today. They have him. He looks kind of like a big, you know, Yosemite Sam kind of guy without the big red beard, but looks kind of the same and they call him sourdough sam you know because of the whole san francisco sourdough thing which actually was also brought to san to california during the gold rush it became this thing that they did um so the 49ers uh, did not start in the nfl but they were a part of the nfl by 1950 so the other football league didn't last long and then they were be they were um sort of absorbed into the nfl do you know how many super bowls the 49ers have won how many they've won? Yeah. Ooh. Um, five. They have won five Super Bowls. They won in 1980. <laughs> you, were so, you were so surprised and delighted that I knew that. <laughs> well, because, I mean, I know you know a lot about sports, but to know the exact number is, that's impressive. They won in 1981, 1984, 1988, 1989, and 1994. They have won the NFC championship seven times. They have won the NFC West division 20 times. They currently play in Levi stadium 
And these are some famous past players. Are you ready? I'm always ready for your your past players list. I can't I wait. I know you'll love it when I list players. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Young played for the 49ers. Yep. Joe Montana also played for the 49ers. When I was a little girl, I thought that he was from Montana. He's oh, not. Yeah. He's not. Deion Sanders played for the 49ers. Jerry Rice played for the 49ers, was also in Dancing with the Stars. That's true. Terrell Owens. T.O. You love T.O. I think he was on Dancing with the Stars, too. Hmm. Trend. And last but certainly not least in my book, Colin Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick. San Francisco 49ers. What? No, no. Are you giving me no Ronnie Lotlove? No, I don't know who that is. I only hmm. picked players off the list who I'd heard of. Um, Colin Kaepernick was part of the San Francisco 49ers when he started his kneeling for the anthem protest that he was part of the 49ers when that happened, for those of you who did not know that. Um, and then, of course, one of my favorite things to do is talk about the food that's served at the stadium, because if we ever go to professional sporting events or really any sporting event at all, that's the thing that I look forward to the most is what food is there. What's the thing? that they're known for. So Levi stadium has a ton of foods, but these are just a few guy. Fieri has a chicken place. there called guy. Fieri's chicken guy. Hey, and you can get chicken filet Sammy's and there are 22 sauce options that you can pick from mm. to have on your chicken. Sammy that's in section three Oh nine of Levi stadium. <laughs> Thanks for the section number. <laughs> You're welcome. Tony Giamani slice house it's a pizza place um it's a san francisco pizza place and gem gemin jemmy ganani jemmy ganani um they have a 49er slice called tony's tailgate and it includes meatballs pepperoni salami bacon ricotta mozzarella and green onions mm. that is located in the united club um iguanas is a local mexican restaurant and they apparently are known for their massive burritos and i included that because you love a massive burrito i do love a burrito as big as my head you do and that's a family-owned restaurant and they're pretty well known in san francisco they're in section 116 and last but not least this place just really baffled me and i i have not been able to really wrap my head around it it's the chur waffle so a chur waffle is a bite-sized cross between corn, a cornbread waffle and a churro. I'm not sure what that looks like. Sounds amazing. I've never seen a cornbread waffle, but it's a mix and they have all different varieties. Apparently they have a really good strawberry shortcake one that's supposed to be good. And chur waffle is located in the touchdown terrace. Oh, there you go. You kind of had me at churro there. I know. Who doesn't? And that is the history, the story, the legend, the foods of the San Francisco 49ers. You crushed it. Yeah, it was a, it was a lot. It was a big one. And you certainly didn't rush it. <laughs> Sorry. No, <laughs> just, my goal, it. Were, my goal rush it. I get it. See, I get it. I, there? I do see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was great, but it, you know what time it is. It's time for the big three. It's quiz time. I'm ready. And I'm excited because oftentimes during quiz time, when you've told the story and I have to quiz you with the big three, you cover and answer my questions, and then I have to like scramble to get new questions. But, um, but I think I've got three here that I didn't have to scramble for. So I hope you're ready for this. And I, I see, uh, I see uh, Lily's in, this, in listening live right now. And those listening live can help you out if they like to. All you got to do is drop your uh, answer in the chat box as well. But Kelly, it's time for the big three. I'm Question ready. number one. All right. Yeah. Under uh, famous football coach Bill Walsh. From 1979 to 1988, the San Francisco 49ers developed and ran one of the most, face, most famous offensive play-calling schemes 
in football history. What was this offensive scheme called? Now you have multiple choice. Are you ready? Yes. A, Minor Minor 49er. That's the name of our episode. B, West Coast. Hmm. C, the Fly Zone. Hmm. Or D, the California Cruiser. I, I read this and now I can't remember. But I think it was California Cruiser. Is that your final answer? Yeah. The famous offense developed by Bill Walsh for the San Francisco 49ers is the West Coast offense. Oh, I knew it was like something with a C. I suppose. I was close. Yeah. Now you know, though. You've learned something. I learned. Question number Two, you did sort of answer this one. Okay. Okay. Name two 49er quarterbacks that have won a Super Bowl. Okay. No um, multiple choice. Just can you Joe, name Joe two? Montana. Joe Montana is one of them. You have to name a second 49ers quarterback. Probably Steve Young. You are correct. Yes. Joe Montana and Steve Young have both won a Super Bowl. Both have quarterbacked the San Francisco 49ers. Yeah, Cap did not win a Super Bowl. He did not. But that is a great segue into question number three. Ooh. In Super Bowl 47, the San Francisco 49ers played the Baltimore Ravens. The 49ers would go on to lose the Super Bowl to the Baltimore Ravens. However... America and the world watching were all victorious when this famous singer performed at the halftime show. Who is the singer? Well, what was the year? The year was 2013. Do you need a hint? Um, Well, it wasn't Beyonce, I don't think. Was it Beyonce? Well, it was Beyonce. Oh, because she performed at two Super Bowls. It was at the Superdome. The lights went out. It was 2013? And she also brought on Destiny's Child to perform. Oh, that was that one. I'm thinking of the one she did with Bruno Mars and Coldplay. That was later on. I think that was 2015. Yeah. Yes. This was the famous one where she was so powerful with her performance, the lights went out at the stadium and they had to delay the second half of the game. She is massively powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's one of the best Super Bowl performances ever. When Destiny's Child came out, I lost my mind. <laughs> As always the case. Uh, so pretty good there. You went two for three. That's a good That's a good score. Yeah, that is good. I usually don't do too good on the big three, so I'm glad I did better. Yeah. But now we have to overall rank the San Francisco 49ers. You well, the story. Them. Not the 49ers themselves. No, not the team, just the story. Right. But you get to decide based on our four categories on one to five, one being terrible, five being the best. Are you ready? Yes. Category the first, uniqueness of the name. Well, there's only one 49ers. There sure is. Uh, but there's multiple gold rushes. I mean, there was like the Klondike gold rush in Alaska. Um, I've watched Deadwood. I know there's a rush of mining and gold in the hills of South Dakota. Yeah. So is it that unique to name it after a gold rush? There's only one 49ers. But there are, there's probably a miners. There's no miners in the name 49ers though. But it rhymes. Okay, well, now this is semantics at this point, Josh. I'm giving you a five. Thank you. <laughs> Jeez. Second category, reflection of town or city in the team name. Well, considering the history of not only of the city of San Francisco being a landing point and launch point for many of those seeking the gold uh, and the town built up from it, and, of course, the entire state that San Francisco resides in, it has to be a five. Oh, thank you. 
Third category, interest of story behind the team name. Well, again, considering my limited knowledge of the gold rush being just a bunch of dudes run to California and try to strike it rich, um, and limited knowledge I had based on Hollywood movies and TV shows, uh, I learned quite a bit about the travel, the poop water you so graciously told us about. Poop water, and, yeah. You get the uh, disease. And uh, the LGBT history. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the, and then the unfortunate history of uh, Native American genocide. Yeah, lots of that Ooh. going on. It was, that's, that, that was a story. It's a five. Ooh. And then the fourth category is standing the test of time. Does the team name stand the test of time? So I was actually thinking about this even before we got to this point. Um, and I was like, man, I think the 49ers is a pretty solid standing the test of time name. However, you yourself made the argument that perhaps they should change it based on the negative parts of the history of the name. And that got me wondering, will it stand the test of time? It has, but will it? And should it? I think it will. I mean, because there's no outcry for it to change. Because I don't think the majority of people know know, about the the genocide associated with the California gold rush. Hmm. I don't know if that's a great argument. Because I would say that people probably thought the same thing about the Cleveland Indians back in 1950. I think, I mean... Okay, whatever. But <laughs> <laughs> so, because you yourself put the doubt in my brain, I'm going with our first ever four point five. Wow, a four point five. That's something. I do so think that's... it's going to stand the test of time. I don't think it's going to be one that changes. But you put the shadow of the doubt in there. The doubt's there. You get half point deducted. You've scored our first 19.5. I did score the first 19.5. You know what? I'll take it. I'll, I'm, I'm satisfied with that. Because if they did ever change it, one, I can't imagine how pissed people would be. But two, it would also mean like there people are recognizing what happened during the California gold rush to Native people. And that would be really monumental, I think. It would. Yeah. It would. So thank you so much for sharing that great story. I had no idea... Uh, the extensive history of the gold rush. I feel like there's even probably vast amounts more that you didn't even get into. Oh, so much uh, more. Yeah. You know, and, and the, the social impacts. Um, but you know, it's definitely, um, I'm surprised there's not like a Ken Burns documentary. Is there a Ken Burns documentary? <laughs> like, this I don't is know if his like the West includes, yeah. um, well, I'm writing him a letter. So, yeah, when we Gold Rush, yeah. premiering in 2024 on PBS. Yeah, it would be amazing. Yeah. So that, that, that's fantastic. You scored great, 19.5. We learned the fantastic history of the San Francisco 49ers. You scored a two out of three on the yeah. big three questions. I did. I'd say, you know what? This, is, this was a Super Bowl caliber performance, right oh. in the line with the 49ers. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Great. And, you know, edgy, too, with the Colin Kaepernick stuff in there. I feel I mean, like, you know, Colin and I are very similar. I mean, I don't know if it was edgy. You didn't really, t- like, get into Colin Kaepernick and all that stuff. Well, I could. You know I love him, and I would talk about him for hours if given the chance. True. Maybe you should send him an email. Oh, my God. Do you think he would be on our show? Maybe. Give him, give him, give him the, the old, uh, you know, slide into his DMs or something. I don't know. Oh, for sure I will. <laughs> All right. So uh, with that being said, those listening, thank you so much. Uh, Thanks to those who joined us live here tonight on Fireside. And as always, thanks to all of you who are listening uh, via your favorite streaming uh, podcast streaming service of choice, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, um, all of them. Stitcher, Uh, iHeartRadio, Apple. Yeah, you you listen to podcasts. We're likely there and we really appreciate your support. As always, those who aren't listening live on Fireside and would like to join the Fireside community and be a part of our live broadcasts on Fireside, feel free to reach out via email. Send us an uh, email and we can get you a VIP link to join our shows live. You can interact with us 
jump up on stage, talk with us live while we record and be a part of the shows. Uh, a lot of people really love to do that on our sideline show, which is our sister uh, story time. Mm-hmm. So uh, to be a part of that, go ahead and email us at Kelly. Go team stories at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow us on all your favorite social medias. Uh, we're not on the TikTok yet, but maybe, maybe someday. But right now we're know. on the. I feel like we're too old for the TikTok. Right now we're, hey, hey, we're not too old for anything. Right okay. now we're on the, we're on the FB, but primarily on the Instagram. Uh, so don't forget about that. And then on Fireside, those listening on Fireside, you can follow along on our profiles uh, under Kelly Albrecht and Josh Albrecht and get all the back episodes there as well i think that i think i got it all let's see i got that down pretty good you do i think you got it all i think you covered yeah. it yeah I'm, I'm a regular i'm a regular hype machine yeah we've got some exciting new things coming up um a little bit of uh maybe new logo possibility website launching with some additional fun stuff on that that we're going to include so um stay tuned for that because we're really excited about that maybe merch i don't know who knows it, it's coming it's gonna it's be coming. it's gonna be a rush oh. of new things brought it back around huh, huh? brought it back around <laughs> and so there we are with all that said and done we've gone through the usual end of show brigade yeah and now there's only thing one thing left to say kelly what is that that's go team go team <laughs>